We return in our study to 2 Timothy chapter 2 this morning, and we're going to go to verse 23 and read through the end of the chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 23. Paul writes to Timothy and says in verse 23, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may, perhaps, grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Bow your heads with me, would you, as we go to the Lord in prayer before we continue this morning. Father, What a privilege it is to be able to gather in your name and to sing the the hymns of worship that we've sung this morning. And And I trust, even in some small way, to to sing before you what the true desire of our hearts is. God, you know the desire of our hearts. You know where we are spiritually before you this morning. And I pray that you would search and probe each and every heart this morning and bring to our spiritualize, bring to our hearts and minds the truth that you have for us today from your word, what powerful words that are before us in your word, and and how often we're reminded of this truth as we open the word together and search the truths for ourselves. We find that your word is powerful, it is effective, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. So Lord, Lord, I pray this morning that you would use the word and the power of the Word to meet our deepest needs. How good it is, Lord, that you know our needs. And though we may not even know how to pray and ask for you to meet our needs, we do pray, I pray that we would humble ourselves before you this morning and before your Word, asking for your guidance and direction in all things, and in these things, especially as we as we find them this morning, we'll direct our steps if we will yield to you in them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We come back to our study this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and the issue that Paul is addressing here in these closing verses has been about how to deal with false teaching that has crept into the church. And and what we find in these final verses of chapter 2 this morning is uh, more specifically how to gently correct those who are out of step with God's Word. Now, dealing with false teaching is what Paul has been instructing Timothy about in these closing verses of chapter 2, and this is just as needful for us today as it was for Timothy in the church of his day, because as a result of false teaching, there is much false teaching that, that still exists and thrives today in many different forms. As a result of false teaching, there will be people who are not living in step with biblical truth. It's also possible that as a result of misteaching or misunderstanding or false teaching, people could also be living in disobedience to God's Word because of a, a deficient knowledge of the Scriptures, a deficient understanding of God's Word. And we, we gather together here on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings and Wednesday evenings. We gather together frequently so that we can open the Scriptures 
and humble ourselves before God's Word, as we are today. I hope that you're humbling yourself before the Word, even as we began to read it this morning, asking the Lord to show you His truth and shape your thinking by His Word, because it is when we fail to do this, when we fail to yield ourselves before God's Word and and humbly submit ourselves to the truths that He has revealed to us in His Word, we will eventually be led astray. Because if you are not humbled before God's word, that means you are living in opposition to his truth, and Satan will be more than happy to feed you lies to lead you away from the truth. Now, what leads to disobedience is important. And we're going to be talking this morning about how to gently correct those who are living in disobedience, or how to gently correct those who are doctrinally living out of step with God's word because they because of of ignorance or misunderstanding or, or false teaching, how to do that with gentleness uh, to correct them and to set them in the right path. Now, how how we get to the point of disobedience? How do we get to the how we get to the point of misunderstanding or or uh, uh, a weak doctrine or a weak biblical understanding of the scriptures is very important, but that's not the topic at hand this morning. What we are going to see, what we are going to address in the text is how we are to help correct those who are being led astray or who are willingly living in opposition to God's truth. What we are going to see in the text is how we're to help correct those who walk, whose walk is out of step with the scriptures. Now, I talk about your walk being in step with the scriptures, and what we're talking about is the way you live. Your, the, your life the way you live, the way you conduct yourself, whether it's in school or in business or in your neighborhood or with your brothers and sisters in the home or whether it's your, with your husband or your wife or it's, whether it's with your coworkers or whether it's with your children or with your parents. However you live is supposed to be in step with God's word. And that's why we gather together and teach the scriptures. Maybe you didn't realize that. I'm telling you now. That's why we're here, okay? And, and I hope that that's why you're coming. I trust that the, the majority of you are here because you know we're going to teach the scriptures and I'm going to help hold you accountable to the word by saying this is what God's word says. Do it, right? And when we hold ourselves accountable to God's word, we are going to walk in step with the scriptures and we are going to walk in step with, God, with what God's will is for us. But when we don't walk in step with the Scriptures, God has given us instruction about how to deal with that. When in our midst there are individuals whose lives are out of step with the Scriptures, God's Word says something about what we're supposed to do about it. And we ought to take this teaching very seriously, even though it's sometimes teaching that we don't, we don't like to think about too much. Because for followers of Christ, God's word is our supreme authority. And we come back to the word again this morning. And I take time to remind you that it's the word that is, a, is the authority for us in our lives as, as families, as individual believers, and, and as a church. God's word is the first and final authority. I don't ever want you to think, and, and uh, some may think this because this is the way some, some churches and some belief systems operate. You, you need to understand, the church is not your first and final authority. The church is not our first and final authority. You know what is, right? I just told you. God's word is our first and final authority. The church is to be directed by what God's word says. And when we depart from the truths of the scriptures and begin to bring in our own beliefs and opinions, and then sometimes you'll see some belief systems marry their opinion alongside the Bible and say, our opinion of how you should 
conduct yourself is just as valid as what the Bible says, and you obey us and the Word. Some will say that. Some will neglect the Word and say just obey the church. And in those cases, you need to be, you need to understand it's not the Word that they're following. It's man's opinion. It's man's thinking of what might be best. And and God's God says, you know, my Word is for shaping your opinion of what's best because I know what's best. God's Word has been given to us in written form so that we might know it and obey it and walk in it and and let it direct our thinking and direct our living and direct our conduct and direct the way we do business, right? Amen? I hope so. I hope you believe, I hope you believe that with me because that's, it's so critical that we come to the Word with the understanding that the Word is to direct everything. The Word directs this church. It had better direct this church. And when you see that the Word isn't directing this church anymore, you need to, you need to be vocal about it and, and, and try to get the leadership to pay attention. Just get back in track with the Word. Because when we depart from the Word, we're going to be departing from God's standard for living. When we depart from God's revealed truth, we're going to be out of step with God. That's, that's critical. That's very tragic when that happens. Now I say the Scriptures are our first and final authority because it's, it's true and, and Scripture itself backs that up. If in a few weeks we're going to be in chapter 3, we're going to be in chapter 3, Lord willing, next week. But at this point in chapter 3, in verses 16 and 17 in chapter 3, it may be a few weeks before we get there. In verses 16 and 17, Paul says this to Timothy about the Word. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. That's That's one of the places I get my strong belief and opinion about why God's Word is our first and final authority and not the church, right? The Scriptures themselves are what God has given to us as Christians to guide us in every area of our lives. And the church isn't the first and final authority God's Word is. God gives us, and He has been so gracious to us to give us His Word in the printed form and if you speak English, I think you all do this morning, you are, you are very privileged in that you have several very sound translations that you can choose from to allow your heart to be equipped with the wisdom that God has revealed to you. God's Word is our first and final authority. When we depart from the Scriptures, we're headed into troubled territory. It's important to make that distinction because when we find ourselves out of step with God's Word, we're going to find ourselves out of alignment with God, out of step with God. Because His Word is what He intends to guide us. And when we find ourselves living in disobedience to God, we're the only thing that we can do, the only thing that we should do, it may not be the thing we do, but it's the only thing that we should do is humble ourselves before God's Word. Humble ourselves before the Word and let it correct our thinking and let it set our steps aright. Let it correct our direction. We find ourselves living in, in disobedience to God. We ought to humble ourselves before His Word. We ought to confess our disobedience as sin and we ought to begin taking steps of obedience as quickly as possible. God's Word also teaches us that when we see a brother or sister in Christ living in sin, 
when we see a brother or sister in Christ, one who, who claims the name of Christ, who says, I'm a follower of Christ, and has, has testified so, and you see someone who has testified to know Christ as Lord and Savior, and yet they're living in sin, and you, and you can see that's obvious. God's Word says something about what we're supposed to do about that. And we see it this morning in the text. God's Word teaches us that when we see a brother or sister in Christ living in disobedience to God's Word, remember, living in disobedience to God's Word, out of love for God, out of love for people, and specifically out of love for that person as a part of the body of Christ, it is our responsibility to help correct their direction and to lovingly and gently come alongside them and help teach them the truth so that they might obey the truth. And yet, even as I say that, I'm fairly confident that if you're honest with me, and I'll be honest with you, I don't like this. No, Not too many of us enjoy thinking about having to correct anyone. The only person I like to correct, no, never mind. I'll get in big trouble for that because I really don't correct. Yeah, you know where I'm going, right? Nobody likes to correct anybody else. I, I find it natural to correct my children. Okay? And I think that's the way God intended it to be. Because parents ought to correct their children as they're coming up through the, through the ranks, right? And if you're in my house, you're in the ranks. Just, just kidding. We, we don't have rank or anything like that. I'm the boss and everybody else follows. No, I'm just kidding. Really get to dig a hole here this morning. We, we find it easier as parents, don't we, to direct the affairs of our children, to correct them, to correct their direction, right? I think that's the way it should be. But don't you find it difficult to think in terms like what we're seeing here in the Scriptures this morning when you think about other believers being out of alignment with God's Word, God's truth? Don't you? Doesn't your heart kind of kick it up a notch when you think about maybe confronting them and telling them, you know, I, I'm afraid that... The way you're living isn't in line with the truth of God's word. Can I show you what the Bible says? Can I can I show you what I believe from scriptures is is how we ought to be living in this way? Doesn't that scare you? For some of you, it doesn't, and God may choose to use it in a very special way. I I trust that you'll learn from the passage together with us this morning that you need to practice this truth, even if this doesn't scare you. You need to practice that responsibility with with great care and caution and love. And gentleness, we're going to see that emphasized here in the text this morning. But I'm fairly confident that most of us don't enjoy the thought of having to correct anyone other than maybe our children when they're young. When your children become teenagers, then you begin to not like correction as much again, right? Because you know they're becoming young adults headed toward adulthood, and, and they obviously don't take correction as well at times, you know, because you can see their face. They're like, yeah, right, okay. Or... Give you, give you some direction, and the kids go, okay. Like, so you come to your teenagers, and you begin to learn that it's harder to give them direction, isn't it? Correction. But at times they're going to need it. And teenagers, young people, please hear me. You are not alone. Young people need correction and direction. But I'll tell you that all believers are going to need correction and direction from time to time. We are all going to need this from time to time. Please don't think that we're picking on young people this morning, but if you're a follower of Christ, young person, you need to get this and, and, and be committed to this truth as much as any other adult in this room, that we need to be ready to be corrected when, when the correction comes, but we also need to be ready to give correction gently and lovingly when it's necessary. Having said that, 
fear and trepidation when we start thinking about correcting others, right? We're not thrilled about the idea, but it's in God's Word. And what comes from God comes from the from the power of God at work in us. And we can take great confidence in knowing that what He intends for us to be obedient in, He will equip us for and empower us for with the love and gentleness that He intends for us to have as we take steps of obedience in, in following through in what He directs us to do. Now, just think with me for a moment. You know, we, we would agree, right, that sometimes we are fearful about confronting others who need to be corrected, who are living in sin or who are doctrinally incorrect, or who are out of alignment with the Scriptures. We don't, we don't look forward to those times, do we? But there are some reasons for that. One of them I noted is fear, right? We fear man rather than God at times. We're afraid of what people will think of us rather than what God will think of us. And that's a fear we need to overcome, isn't it? Uh, Proverbs 29.25 reminds us that the fear of man uh, lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You need to remember that if you trust in the Lord and you're obedient to God, you're safe. He's going to care for you. You may be misunderstood. You may even be mistreated in this life, but ultimately His hand of provision is upon you. The fear of man is a snare, though, right? And we're reminded of that many in many other times in the Scriptures. There's also a reminder in verse 24 where we see that the Lord's servant, we see this mention of the Lord's servant in verse 24 here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. The Lord's servant need not fear, right? Think about it. If you're the Lord's servant, who are you supposed to be serving? You're supposed to be serving God, aren't you? And if you're the Lord's servant, He is equipping you. He is. He should be emboldening you, and He will embolden you if you will humble yourselves before Him in His Word. He will equip you and embolden you to do His service, to do the ministry for which He is preparing you. And the Lord's servant need not fear when seeking to biblically and lovingly correct fellow believers, yet, yet fear is one of those reasons we don't like correcting, right? We also fail to bring biblical correction because we've been led to believe that we're not to judge others which is a misapplication of the teaching of Matthew 7.1. You know the passage very well. You probably know it better than any other passage because so many people say it. Even people who don't know the Bible say, judge not that you be not judged, right? How many times have you heard it? You don't know, do you? You might have said it a few times. And yes, that is Scripture. But that's likely one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. Because what Jesus was teaching was not that we aren't to observe in the lives of others whether or not they're obeying God's truth. How in the world could we possibly minister to one another if we don't observe the lives of one another for steps of obedience? And I'm not saying that we're watching everyone. I'm watching you to find out whether you're obeying. But there ought to be some obvious obedience in the lives of God's children. And when there isn't obvious obedience, when there's actually steps of disobedience, and we see that in the lives of people who profess to be God's children, that ought to raise concern for us. And in that way, we are to judge one another. How can we not care for one another if we aren't observing the lives of one another with great love and concern based on our love for the body of Christ, the church? And so what Jesus was teaching in Matthew 7, 1 isn't that we not judge, it's that we not unduly judge one another and be excessively harsh with someone's minor infractions when we have major infractions in our own lives we need to deal with. That's what God was teaching. That's what God's Word is teaching. That's what Jesus was saying in Matthew 7, 1. But yet, 
we think that it's politically incorrect to judge others these days, don't we? We'll never find a point where we're comfortable with correcting brothers and sisters in Christ if we don't observe in some measure and judge the lives of others considering those biblical truths that God has revealed to us taking into account the fruit of their lives. If we don't observe the lives of others, we'll never be able to lovingly correct and direct others if we don't judge in some way. Other reasons we fail to correct others are that we're afraid that we're, we're going to be corrected, right? Sometimes we fear the idea of correcting others because we think, and maybe rightly so, they're going to correct us in return, and we don't want to be corrected. Just about as much as we dislike correcting, we like being corrected, right? And we fear that. We also fail to correct because we don't want to meddle in the affairs of others or we procrastinate or we've been convinced by the world that tolerance is a virtue. And there are times, and even as I say that, there are times when it would be the right thing for you and the other person that we overlook an offense. But there are other times you must not overlook an offense, which is another reason we fail to correct. Sometimes we're just not certain when we should correct or when we should overlook. And so then procrastination comes. I'm not sure what to do, so I'm not going to do anything. And the danger for the church and the family is that if we don't correct, we eventually run off course. We eventually run off course of God's Word. And where there is error, there will be a drift away from the truth to the point that where there was at least some truth, there will eventually be no truth. That's why the church needs to remember what our standard for practice is. It's the God's Word. And we must center on the truth of God's Word. When we begin to drift from the Word, we will not come back until someone brings us back or a group of someone's bring us back. If we don't find correction, if we aren't corrected, we will drift completely off course to the point where someday there will be no truth. Now the challenge that we have in the text from Paul is that when there is a departure from the truth, whether it's deliberate sin or because a believer is in doctrinal error, there is a right way and there is a wrong way to correct. The right way is graciously and lovingly and gently and biblically the wrong way Paul starts out with. And that was just my introduction this morning. So... Hang on, no, I'm just kidding. We, we, we shouldn't be much longer here. I want you to know, though, this is, this, the idea of the Scripture and the importance of the Scripture in the introductory parts of this message is so, so critical that we put the foundation of the Scripture before us. Because what we have to talk about this morning is not the church's opinion about how we practice as believers. It's God's opinion. It's the Bible's opinion. It's what God's revealed to us in His Word. And Paul is good to us this morning, good to the church in giving us direction about how to correct and how not to correct. He points to the how not to first. He starts with the negative. Look at verse 23 again. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Sounds like Timothy's got some experience. You remember last last week or the week before last week, actually, in verse 22, back up a verse, Paul says to Timothy, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. He's talking about uniting with other believers, coming along beside other believers and being done with youthful passions. Now, I noted it a couple of weeks ago, and I noted again this morning that what he's talking about is not necessarily improper fleshly lusts. Okay? 
it includes that. But what he's talking about is the propensity for a person of youth to get easily caught up in an argument. And the younger you are, sometimes the easier it is to get into an argument or get into a tiff with somebody, right? And Paul is saying to Timothy, look, you're young, but I'm, but you can do this. With the power of the Holy Spirit at work within you, you need to flee those youthful passions. Flee those natural, that natural inclination to get inflamed passionately in the midst of an argument, heated discussion. And so with that thought in mind, verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Evidently, he had some experience with this, right? And so the correction from verse 22, which is a good reminder for us, Paul has likely given Timothy some gentle correction here, saying, be careful, don't keep getting inflamed in these arguments. He's given him the kind of correction that we're talking about this morning. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Don't make it your practice to get into foolish, ignorant controversies. And the suggestion is that there will always be some who prefer to argue about issues that are highly disputed and controversial. Sometimes you've met people like that who just like to argue about controversial, controversial issues, right? And there will always likely be people like that. Some doctrinal controversies, though, are unavoidable. Some doctrinal controversies are very important. And we ought not neglect them. Some doctrinal controversies do deserve and require our attention. But there will be those, though, you're going to find who refuse to carry on a thoughtful discussion without getting into an argument. And Paul says, be done with those. Don't, don't, don't waste your time with foolish arguments. If you can't carry on a calm discussion about your differences of, of opinion or difference of view doctrinally, if you can't do it without getting inflamed with, with passionate anger, then you need to move on. Charles Spurgeon wrote and said this, better keep out of a quarrel than fight your way through it. We never do much for truth or goodness by getting angry about it. Whenever a man debates about truth and loses his temper, he has also lost his cause. He goes on to say, I have heard of one who knew little of true religion, who watched a missionary and a Brahmin disputing, the, uh, and he decided that the missionary was in the right. When he was asked what he thought, why he thought so, he said, because he kept his cool and the other man flew into a passion. Spurgeon goes on to say, although they may not always, that may not always be a good test of the truth of the matter in question, it certainly is a good test of how the dispute is going. How argumentative are you, right? How, how passionate are you about this discussion? You know, when you find someone who likes to argue over things of a controversial nature and you sense that you're, you're likely not going to be able to bring any light to the subject for them, but, but you find you're only carrying wood to the fire for them, you best turn around and walk away. Now, how do you prepare yourself for that? How do you prepare yourself for bringing correction to the person who may just want to get in an argument with you? I say immerse yourself in the Scriptures. Immerse yourself in God's Word and work to grasp those basic doctrines of the Christian faith and your recognition of those kinds of issues is going to be heightened that will that will cause controversy, but bring a level head and a calm, gentle spirit to those discussions because they, they sometimes do need to be addressed. But if you find a person who only wants to argue the fine details and points, Paul's point is very clear. Be done with that. Don't have anything to do with that. 
have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. God's church is not to be a breeding ground for quarrels, is it? Right? God's church is not to be a breeding ground for quarrels. Amen. It would be a great place for an amen. I know you're with me in this. I know you're with me in this. I am very thankful I am very grateful to God for a people who love God's word and who demonstrate their humility before God in this way that, that God's church, the Higgins Lake Baptist Church, is not a breeding ground for quarrels. I am so thankful by the gentle humility of God's people who are willing to come before God's word and say, what does God's word say? Don't ever lose that gentle humility before God's word and before one another. Don't ever lose that. Cling to that. Now, Paul, Paul warns that to get involved in these kinds of foolish, ignorant controversies is only to invite an argument which does more harm than good. And that's the negative side of correction. That's what we ought to avoid. Now, I want you to note the positive aspect of correction. And note that this first step of correction will be impossible if we ignore the first point we just made. We learn from verses 24 and 25 that correction is to be done with gentleness. That's going to be impossible if we allow ourselves to get drawn into a a quarrel. Look at verses 24 and the first half of 25. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. We are to correct. We are to correct. And we're to correct those who are sinning. We are to correct those who are caught up in doctrinal error. And here's how. Paul says, the instruction we're looking, we're looking at here from Paul this morning, I think could be summed up like this, correct with gentleness or, or gentle correction. I thought it was interesting as I thought about that and I looked at our piecemeal insert in today's bulletin says gentle correction. That wasn't planned other than God's plan. I didn't plan that. I thought that was interesting. But that's the sum. That's the idea of the whole point this morning. Gentle correction. It's not that there's no correction, but that there's gentle correction. And the instruction that we're looking here from Paul could be summed up that way. Gentle correction or correct with gentleness. How do you do that? Paul emphasizes that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. And I think that that emphasis on the fact that there is a servant of the Lord at hand is important. Remember first that, that your desire to please the Lord with your attitude Your desire to please the Lord with your speech and your conduct and with your humility before God makes you His servant. If you want to be God's servant, don't forget that you come with His orders and you come with His strength and His indwelling presence. God's servant must not be characterized as being a troublemaker. The opposite must be true of us. If you want to correct biblically, If you want to correct lovingly, then you will do so with kindness. Paul says, be kind to everyone. In verse 24, he says, be kind to everyone. In verse 25, he says, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And if that's not enough for you, here are a few other scriptures from the New Testament. Galatians 5.22 drives this point home, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. 1 Thessalonians 2.7 but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Titus 3.2, speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. James 3.17, again, pictures of how the believer ought to live his life. 
but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And 1 Peter 3.8 says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Along these lines, John MacArthur writes, As much as we are to speak boldly for the Lord without compromise, we are to do so with the attitude of meekness, gentleness, and humility. We are never to be harsh, abusive, overbearing, unkind, thoughtless, or pugnacious. There is to be a softness in the authority of a Christian leader. And there ought to be a softness of authority in the walk of a, of a godly person. Because you take great hope and great confidence in the promises of God, and with that confidence you boldly proclaim His truth, and yet when there's correction that needs to be given, you give it gently and with love and respect. Because the one who wishes to effectively encourage brothers and sisters toward Christ's likeness is going to do so with kindness and gentleness. Paul also says, able to teach, able to teach, which shows the importance of teaching the truth. Remember, we're talking about using the word to set our minds right so that we can help set the hearts and minds of others right who are living in disobedience to God's word or who are misinformed or uninformed. Able to teach. Teach what? Right? Able to teach the truth of God's Word. That's what we're talking about here. And Paul says able to teach. It doesn't necessarily have to be in a formal setting either. I know that when we start talking about being able to teach, some people go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I'm not a teacher. I, I, I can't do this Sunday school thing. I'm not. It's okay. That's not what we're talking about here. It's not what Paul is talking about. What Paul is talking about is the idea of bringing the truth of God and bringing alongside someone in brotherly love and, and, and loving them toward Christ with the truth, an explanation of the truth and an encouragement toward living that truth. The point is always this. The point is always restoration to spiritual fellowship. The point is always spiritual restoration and, and those who are living in sin and those who are neglecting the truth of the gospel need to be corrected and pointed to the truth. But the, but the point is always restoration. It's never admonishment. You don't bring the ruler and smack in the back of the hand. That's not the kind of an attitude that you bring to correction. Ray Steadman challenges us that able to teach also points to dealing with the facts of Scripture away from feelings. He describes one able to teach as skillfully dealing with the facts involved, not with feelings, not with fantasies, but with the facts of Scripture. There is, there is where we, uh, there, he says in the Scriptures, there is where we must always return. It is so easy for an argument to slide off the facts and onto feelings, experiences, and reactions to things. The Lord's servant, says Ray Stedman, must call people back to the facts, the facts of Scripture. Now, you must be willing, you must be able to lovingly, gently come alongside and teach the truth of the Word. And Paul also instructs that the one who wishes to lovingly correct must be patient when wronged. Now that's an interesting statement, isn't it? Patient when wronged. Why is that? Well, because you're not always going to be understood, are you? And you might know this to be very true. You may not always be understood. You can do your best and still be misunderstood or responded to harshly. And 
Paul says, and God's word again and again says, be ready for that, be prepared for it, and be patient. Be patient. Stephen Cole writes, often when you try to correct others, they will respond by attacking you. They will falsely accuse you of wrong motives or they will bring up shortcomings in your behavior to try to divert matters away from their own sins. If you are impatient when wronged, you lose the ability to correct effectively. Wise words. And you know them to be true, don't you? And it's easy to become defensive, isn't it? But be patient. Be patient. We just noted a moment ago in Galatians 5.22 that one of the fruits of the Spirit is patience. And be certain that as you try to help point a fellow believer to the truth, you are yielded to and guided by the Spirit and the Word because it's the Spirit and the Word that's going to do the effective work. The Spirit and the Word, the Spirit may choose to use you for His honor and glory to help direct a person to the truth. But if you are impatient, you could damage the work that God intends for you to be a part of. Those you bring correction to may not always respond as charitably or as quickly as you hope they would. They may even lash out at you. You need to be prepared for that. But the servant of the Lord is patient when wronged. You know, we could grow in this, I think. We can all grow in this, and there's probably never going to be a day when we couldn't grow more in this because we, as Americans, are so quick to say, these are my rights. This is what I've, you know, this is what our, our troops for ages have fought for and people have given their lives for our freedoms. And yes, we have freedoms and I am so grateful for them. But this gospel is not an American gospel. This is a Christian gospel and often flies in the face of what we call our, our American liberties because sometimes we stand very vocally against people who would oppose us. And when we, what we need to do is gently correct and lovingly take the opposition. Because what God intends for us to be is a shining light in the midst of darkness and not a part of the darkness. One way we learn to be patient with others is by keeping central to our purpose for correction, God's purpose for correction. Sometimes we get, we get that crooked, don't we? We forget about God's purpose for correction. Sometimes we think, well, you know, a person has wronged me or they've done something to wrong someone else and I'm going to help set them right because that's not right. And God is the ultimate judge. And we are much better off to keep that in focus. What is God's purpose for correction? That's what we need to ask. What's God's purpose for correction? The purpose for correction is spiritual restoration. The purpose for correction is to bring a person back to fellowship with God and back to fellowship with other believers. And implied in that statement, here in the second second part of verse 25 and, and verse 26, is, is just that. Look at, look at the second half of verse 25. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The statement here in verse 25 that God may perhaps grant them repentance is a very clear reminder that it may be a very difficult situation trying to bring the truth to the one who is sinning against God, the one who is out of line with God's truth. We, we may not see immediate repentance and acceptance of the truth, but God's servant is patient, right? God's servant is patient. And God may perhaps grant them repentance. It may not be immediate. It may be that He's going to use you to nudge them in the right direction and He may use others 
to continue to help bring them to a point of obedience. But God's servant is patient. We're also reminded by the, that statement that God may perhaps grant grant them repentance. We're reminded by that statement that repentance and salvation are always in God's hands. We can't force anyone to repent and to obey. That's a work of the Holy Spirit in the, in the heart and mind of an individual to break their hearts with their own sin and bring them to, to a point of repentance. Repentance is indeed a gift of God. And sometimes we get frustrated when people don't repent quickly enough. But we, Don't forget, you can't force them to repent. Let the Holy Spirit do His work. Give them the Word. Point them to the truth. Encourage them in the right direction. Offer your assistance and let the Holy Spirit work. At some point, you know, we don't know that a person who appears to be impossible to lead to the truth may just by God's power have their hearts changed. And we're to be patient. We're to pray for them in order to help correct them and direct them. We are to be diligent and we are to work to teach and convince of the truth, but the outcome is in the hand of the Lord. The outcome is not up to us, but we are to be obedient and faithful. And Paul gives us the correct perspectives when he writes in 1 Corinthians 3.6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God gives the growth. The growth is in God's hands. God gives the gift of repentance, and God also gives the gift of knowledge of the truth. Look at verse 25 again. But may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And going on in verse 26, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. How do you do that? With the truth. How do you come to your senses? The truth opens your eyes. How do you escape the snare of the devil? The truth leads you in the right direction. After being captured by him to do his will, how do you get captured? A departure from the truth. See, the person who lives in opposition to the truth of God's Word is being deceived by the devil. Being deceived into believing that what they're doing is harmless. What that person desperately needs is for God to lead them to the knowledge of the truth. And God may use our gentle correction, our our desire to please God in the way that we come alongside and help teach and direct to the truth. God may use that gentle correction to bring repentance to the heart of that person that seems unrepentant. We can't force and we can't coerce repentance and we shouldn't try. We can't open the spiritual eyes of the heart, but God can. And that's why we inform of the truth and that's why we encourage and help correct and point them in the right way and offer our help. We're also reminded here that this is a spiritual warfare that we're involved in. Remember verse 26 says, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of who? The devil. After being captured by him to do his will. There's a spiritual battle going on. We're involved in a spiritual conflict. Don't ever overlook that. There's spiritual warfare at hand. We're aiming for spiritual restoration for the one who's been deceived and captured by the snare of the devil. And that's why it's so important that we be patient and we always bring correction and we do it from the truth of God's Word because that's where the authority for correction lies, from the truth of the Word. And a person who falls into serious doctrinal error or lives in opposition to God's Word is going to be taken captive by the deceiver to do his sinful work in opposition to God. But as a child of God, we are to seek to patiently and gently and lovingly correct 
and point to repentance those who are straying from the truth of the word. That's what God calls us to. He calls us to obedience. He calls us to examine our own hearts. And if you're walking with Christ today, it's very likely that, that you can point back to a time when, when you were lovingly corrected by a brother or sister in Christ. But God also intends to use His Word and Spirit to help correct you even before someone comes to you. And so we're to be looking at our own lives, examining our own spiritual health, asking God to help correct us even if no one else does. But you may very well be able to point back to a time when someone came alongside you and helped to correct you. I've shared with you before, I remember one time, and very specifically, there have been many times that I've been corrected and needed correction. But there's one time that stands out like no other in my life when a, when a brother in Christ, my brother-in-law, and my whole family knew I was running from God. My own brother in Christ and brother-in-law came alongside me and was very diligent to chase me down and encourage me back to Christ to repent of my sin and be obedient to God. And there's likely not been a week since then that I haven't thought about that time when my brother-in-law got on my face and lovingly corrected me. I have thanked him at many on many occasions. And maybe you can look back to a time in your life when somebody came alongside you and lovingly and gently corrected you. I'll bet their heart was beating fast when they came alongside you to say, what you're doing is wrong. Here's the right way. Let me help you. Let me encourage you. Let me pray for you. I'll bet their, their heart was beating fast when they did that. It scares us, doesn't it? We think about correcting those who need correction. If you're a child of God today, and you're seeking to live a Christ-honoring, godly life, then you are likely going to need to do this. You're likely going to have someone in your life whom, whom you need to help correct. You need to practice gentle correction. Don't shy away from it, but do seek to practice it with humility before God. Examine your own heart. Examine your own heart for sin that you need to correct. Come alongside of that person you love for God's sake. And with humility before God, out of love for God and love for your brother or sister in Christ, do it, but do it with much prayer. Pray with me, would you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. I'm so thankful for the passages of Scripture before us this morning. I have to say, Lord, this is not a topic that I would have chosen to preach on. You know what we need. And as we march through the text together, as we've been going through Second Timothy, we've been finding things that we might not have taught on, but yet we teach of them because here they are before us, and you've given us your word, and it's intended for our good and for your glory. And so, Lord, as we come together before your word today, I, I pray, God, help us, help us to be a people who see the need and the importance of humbling ourselves before you and your word allowing your word to, ex to, to examine our hearts and to shine a, a very bright light deep into the crevices of our lives so that we might root out sin and be done with it. And God, I'm so thankful for the direction of your word this morning and giving us insight and wisdom on how to bring correction to those who need it. Not so that we might admonish them and look down on them, but so that we might humbly biblically come alongside them in brotherly or sisterly love and, and encourage them toward the truth and encourage them to confess and turn to God in, in uh, repentance and obedience. 
God, give us courage for this. Give us wisdom for this. Give us insight into the truths of your word and help us to humble ourselves before your, your mighty word that it might give us wisdom for this, that your church might be mighty and strong in this day when there are so many people who need to see a strong, Bible-centered, Bible-based church who loves God and loves people and who's willing to bring the gospel to the to the farthest part of the world and even to the part of the world that's not so far away across the street or over the divider at work across the court on the playground. God, I pray that you'd help us to share the truth with people who need it and help us to live the truth so that our lives might be a, a shouting, bright, shining example of the love of God at work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.